This is Guns and Butter. Here's the scenario, and we're seeing this in all sorts of other issues. To see the real evil of Obama, uh, we're going to see that after November. In other words, in the lame duck session of Congress, uh, there are all kinds of uh, things that Obama can't pass now, and most of them, I think, are highly destructive, that he's uh, preparing to bring to the floor of the of the Congress in November, December, and maybe even in the first days of, of January. So... The, the principal thing that's going to happen is that this Austerity Commission is going to deliver its report. Now, this is um, the omens on this are as sinister as can be. It's the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. That's already scary. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama plans lame duck sellout of Social Security. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss the so-called financial reform bill, including the content of its Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, more popularly known as the White House Deficit Commission, the Austerity Commission, or the Peterson Commission, and the Group of Twenty meeting in Toronto, Canada. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, Webster, what do you think about this uh, new so-called financial reform bill? Barack Obama has arrived in Toronto, Canada for the G20 with a big victory on an overhaul of the American regulatory system. This according to the New York Times. What do you have to say about that? Well, the first thing I would point out is that this is, this is absolutely unacceptable. Now, a few reasons perhaps why it's unacceptable. I would go like this. Um, it is um, a complete victory of the Wall Street derivatives lobby. It is a sellout so grotesque that uh, it's astounded. Uh, many cynical observers even uh, are amazed at the impudence uh, and shamelessness of the Democratic Party, because this, this doesn't have any left cover to speak of. It, it is so bad that it is uh, really out of the, out of the ordinary couple of, of, of things, right? They, they want to package this as a protection for consumers, and it's true that they've created new, new useless bureaucracies and a mass of strangulating regulations, but let's look at what it actually might do. Uh, would the bill require stockbrokers to act in the best interests of their clients? No. That's much too radical. The retail investor is shafted. Would this bill uh, prevent ripoffs that are customarily used by used car dealers in their financing. No, much too radical. Would it put a limit on the interest rates on credit cards and payday loans? Would it regulate those in any way? No. Would it allow the states 
to make it easier for the states to regulate credit card interest rates and payday loans, right? The old usury laws that we had pre-Volcker, right, pre-1980 or so. No, it won't do that either. Uh, how about foreclosures? Does it stop foreclosures? No. Uh, adjustable rate mortgages, does it do anything about those? Those are a disaster, as everybody has seen. Any move against adjustable rate mortgages? No. Uh, is there a leverage cap on how much money you can borrow to speculate with? No, nothing done there. Uh, is there any move to diminish the power of the Federal Reserve, which was so much talked about, right? The, the monumental failures of helicopter Ben Bernanke when he struck out completely, as did his uh, notorious, infamous predecessor Greenspan, the, uh, the uh, Bubbles Greenspan, the, the derivatives man. Uh, no, it actually makes the Fed more powerful because it gives a certain amount of regulatory uh, ability to them that they, they don't have. So I think this is a disaster. We just have to remember, how did this depression start? We're in a world depression. We're actually in the second wave of it. Uh, how did it start? Well, it was hedge funds and banks engaging in speculation with derivatives. Uh, that is what came to fruition in the panic of 2008 in September, October. Uh, there's nothing that will attack any of those things. It doesn't lay a glove on Wall Street in terms of hedge funds, zombie bank speculation, uh, or, or derivatives for that matter. There are, generally speaking in this bill, no bright line prohibitions backed up with actual penalties. Um, if you want to give it credit, there's one interesting point, that, that some derivatives will be forced out into the open uh, through exchanges and clearinghouses. But this is the equivalent of about one quarter point on a scale of 10. And ironically, the knowledge we will gain will only mock us because we won't be able to do anything uh, about it. Now, there were two provisions in the bill that made some sense, and they had been able to hang on until the last night, until this awful night between, uh, between Thursday and Friday, when, uh, when the, the uh, Wall Street derivatives lobby flexed its muscles, and all the Gucci shoes and the princes of privilege and the gluttons of financial speculation came in and got what they wanted. The first one had to do with derivatives. Now, let me first say what it didn't address. Right? It didn't have anything about structured investment vehicles, which are one of the types of derivatives that caused a lot of the carnage. It did not have anything about collateralized debt obligations. And you'll remember that the collateralized debt obligations, the CDOs, well, that's what destroyed Lehman Brothers. That's what destroyed Merrill Lynch. That's what destroyed Citibank. That's really the basic cause of the, uh, of the panic. That specific derivative didn't have anything about those, but it did at least, uh, thanks to Senator Blanche Lincoln, who's fighting for her life down in Arkansas, it did have a measure that would severely limit the trading of credit default swaps, those bets, right, the outside bets or side bets, uh, the kind of uh, derivative that brought down AIG and cost the American taxpayer uh, $182 billion, I guess, and counting uh, just on that. So this was the famous paragraph 716 of Title Seven of the bill that they worked on in that uh, Dodd-Frank uh, conference committee. Now, interestingly enough, the Blanche-Lincoln strictures on credit default swaps sold by banks basically said if you're a FDIC-insured bank, if you're a commercial bank with, with deposits, you can't trade credit default swaps. You can't be 
like that AIG hedge fund in London that uh, put out $3 trillion of credit default swaps. There was substantial support from this inside the more traditional parts of the banking industry as distinguished from the Wall Street derivatives hyenas, and that would be the Federal Reserve branches of St. Louis, of Dallas, and of Kansas City were actually in favor of this because they, they can see that credit default swaps are going to destroy uh, the way they make a living. Uh, however, shortly after midnight uh, in the night there between uh, Thursday and Friday, the infamous Congressman Colin Peterson, I want his name to live in infamy, Colin Peterson a uh, Democrat of Minnesota, is the chairman of the House Ag Committee. And he came forward with a compromise. Now, where did the compromise come from? They made a big deal that it was all on TV, and I watched a lot of it in this awful night. Uh, I stayed up till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, and they went even further. Colin Peterson comes in with a compromise which has been done behind closed doors, secretly, right, in the smoke-filled room or smoke-free room, probably with Rahm Emanuel, most probably with Geithner, with Larry Summers, with people like this. And it said the following. It said, let's, let's reform what Blanche Lincoln is trying to do. So he says, from now on, we want the banks, we want a compromise so the banks can trade certain kinds of credit default swaps. They can trade interest rate swaps. They can trade foreign exchange swaps. Now, foreign exchange swaps are the majority of all swaps. And credit derivatives swaps, if the institutions involved are AAA rated or at least investment grade rated. So it's very easy to get AAA stamped on anything you want by paying a bribe to Fitch, to Moody's, to Standard & Poor's. That's easy. So essentially, this guts the entire Blanche Lincoln uh, paragraph 716 of Title Seven. The only thing you may say, well, what is it that they can't speculate in? They're not supposed to do commodity swaps, energy swaps, metal swaps, farm product swaps, or credit derivatives that are not based on uh, investment grade AAA or AA rated security. So that essentially meant that the uh, already not ideal Blanche Lincoln 716 paragraph was destroyed. Um, so that was the one big defeat. Now there was another one. There was one other serious uh, provision in this, and this is the so-called Volcker Rule. Now, originally, what you wanted to have was uh, the restoration of the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 as amended later on. And the Glass-Steagall says you can be a bank, you can be an insurance company, or you can be a stock-jobbing uh, stock brokerage, investment bank operation, pick one of the three, bank, insurance, or brokerage, investment bank. Um, that was what we needed. That was the, um, the, the Cantwell-McCain Amendment, which was voted down when the Senate passed their bill. So along comes Volcker, and he said, look, I have a, a weak substitute for that, which is that commercial banks are not allowed to speculate on their own account. They're not allowed to do proprietary trading operations for their own benefit. But you remember Scott Brown of Massachusetts, who ran for the Senate back in January? Well, yes. Now, he's the one that uh, got the seat that, uh, well, that was Kennedy's Kennedy, seat. Kennedy, right. So remember him. Remember, he was a, he's a fake 
cultural populist demagogue. He's actually controlled by Romney. He's a creature of the Romney Wall Street faction of the Republican Party. You remember that Scott Brown's trick was to say, I'm Scott Brown, and I drive a truck. Well, uh, great cultural populist ploy. Scott Brown, who drives a truck, took his truck and drove it right through the Volcker rule, and he put a a loophole in it, which is as big as the uh, Holland Tunnel or something like this. Uh, It's just huge. Here's what it is. You can be a commercial bank, and you can put 3% of your Tier 1 capital into a hedge fund, and you can speculate with derivatives all you want. Now, 3%, people might say, well, 3%, that's not that much. Well, with derivatives, it's very easy to have losses which are 80 or 100 times your original capital, right? It's not like other things, right? If you buy stocks, you can lose everything. You've lost everything you put in. It's gone. But with derivatives, uh, there's no limit, right? You're you're dealing with structured notes and over-the-counter derivatives. Um, it's very easy to make losses of 200 to 300 uh, percent. Uh, and, and this is not theoretical. This is what destroyed Bear Stearns. The beginning of this crisis in 2007 was that Bear Stearns had two hedge funds, which were not that big, uh, and it ended up paying, um, I think, 80 to 1. And it, it uh, ended up owing uh, several billion dollars. So you can destroy your own tier one capital two or three times over or five or ten times over using these derivatives. And he did this in the service of who? In the service of the Massachusetts Tea Party that put him into office, these dupes and useful idiots? No. He did it for State Street Bank, that's number 19, and Bank of New York Mellon, which is a very prestigious bank, which was the back office of the uh, of the TARP, of the uh, Troubled Assets uh, Relief Program. So, um, that's basically it. The Blanche Lincoln provisions are gone. The Volcker rule is gutted. Everything's gutted. Everything is now a mockery. So this is simply uh, a, a testimony to the value received by Wall Street when they put their money into Obama. In other words, you put a Wall Street puppet into the White House with money from Goldman Sachs and the rest of the Wall Street uh, zombie bankers and hedge fund hyenas, and you get what you want. This will not protect anybody. It won't protect anybody from anything. And this so-called financial reform bill, it uh, contains a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. What does it mean to say that uh, this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, would be housed in the Federal Reserve, but run independently. It means, it means that it's captured before it even starts. Again, this concept of regulatory capture, it's what you see with the Minerals Management Service dealing with BP. It's what you, you see with the Bureau of Mines dealing with these horrible West Virginia coal mine operators. It's the same thing. The pattern is that the federal agency that's supposed to regulate is captured by the so-called industry or area of economic activity that it's supposed to be overseeing. And they do this through the revolving door and so forth. I don't think we need, to, we need to go into that. The point is, this is Obama. This is the essence of Obama. This is the essence of the current Democratic Party. And people have got to, uh, to draw the conclusions from that rapidly um, now, because right? this, this, is, this is a ship of fools that is headed, that is headed for the rocks. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama plans lame duck sellout of Social Security. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, in February, President Obama created his White House Deficit Commission, 
the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. The commission is headed by former Republican uh, Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson and Clinton neoliberal Erskine Bowles, who led the fight for the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. Who else is on the commission, and what is its mandate? Well, first let me say that the attempt here with Obama was a, um, a very duplicitous and uh, an attempt to pull a trick on the American people. He wanted to set up something which would have been like the base realignment and closing commission, right? The, the so-called BRAC, I guess it is. Um, and uh, the idea was it's, it's one of these austerity vehicles where Congress, I think, illegally, unconstitutionally, gives authority to a panel of experts. The panel of experts come up with an austerity proposal, and then the Congress is forced to either accept it or reject it in toto with no amendments. It's fast-tracked. There's no legislative process. Committee hearings are not allowed. Uh, no amendments, no, no, nothing on the floor or anything like that. Now, fortunately, that was rejected. It was rejected by the Republicans, who did a, a public service. So it's not binding in that sense. But here's, here's the scenario, and we're seeing this in all sorts of other issues. To see the real evil of Obama, uh, we're going to see that after November. In other words, in the lame duck session of Congress, uh, there are all kinds of... Uh, things that Obama can't pass now, and most of them, I think, are highly destructive, that he's uh, preparing to bring to the floor of the, of the Congress in November, December, and maybe even in the first days of, of January. Well, Webster, uh, would you explain uh, what a lame duck session sure. is? Well, look, look the, there's going to be an election in the first week of November, and after that, large numbers of uh, senators and congressmen, mainly House Democrats, are going to be lame ducks. In other words, they will have been defeated. They're out. But their terms run until the first week of January, so there's plenty of time to do a whole lot of deviltry. And the benefit is, you can see this already in Senator Dodd. Senator Dodd's behavior in this conference committee on this uh, ridiculous uh, excuse for a financial regulation bill uh, is typical, because here's somebody who's gone. Dodd is already a lame duck. He's not running for re-election. He'll be out next January. So who is he looking to? He's not playing to a constituency even of the people of Connecticut, but rather Wall Street investment bankers, because that's who he hopes will uh, will hire him at least, or or have him as a member of the board or a consultant or or something in the near future. You've got to imagine now a swamp of 30, 40, 50 Democrats maybe who are in that same position. They're beyond the retribution of the voter, and they're looking to Wall Street to feather their nests and line their pockets in the future. So this is a, it's a, it's a very, very bad situation. There'll be Republicans in the same, same position also. And, of course, the Christmas holidays will be here, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and all that, and uh, people will be distracted. So the, the principal thing that's going to happen is that this austerity commission that you've just brought up is going to deliver its report. Now, this is... Um, the omens on this are as sinister as can be. It's the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. <laughs> That's already scary. Uh, and their job is going to be to gouge and chisel the entitlement programs that represent the, the economic rights of the American people. They're fruits of centuries of struggles, labor struggles, political struggles, uh, everything we got from... Uh, the American Revolution, the Civil War, the populist movement, the Progressive Era, the New Deal, the, the, the uh, Great Society, the New Frontier, 
uh, all of that is essentially represented in the array, and it's a modest array, of, of um, social safety net institutions, be it Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps, unemployment benefits, uh, uh, WIC, uh, nutrition programs for mothers and children and so forth. The goal of this commission is to gouge all of that mercilessly. And uh, the person put in charge of this, and we, we want to talk about his history a little bit, is the investment banker Erskine Bowles, who was the uh, chief of staff in the Clinton White House for a year or two. The guy comes from Morgan Stanley. He's, in a, he's a finance oligarch, and he had his own firm for about 20 years. So he's a Wall Street investment banker. And then there's Al Simpson, the senator from Wyoming. I don't want to go into this now, but if you look up the stuff he says about how old people need to make more sacrifices and Social Security is out of control and it's time for, for, uh, for austerity and it's time to, uh, to make those tough decisions, uh, it's clear where this entire thing is is heading. Let me just point to a couple of other members of this commission, right? The Republicans appointed some of them, so we can't we can't really blame Obama for, for all of them, although we can blame him for the presence of somebody like Alice Rivlin. And this was the deficit hawk, the austerity ghoul, austerity fanatic uh, of the Clinton administration. She headed the Office of Management and Budget, and she has been uh, around uh, ever since. On the, on the Republican side, You've got uh, somebody like uh, Congressman Ryan, who is the budget expert of the Republicans. And this is somebody who's uh, very open, very aggressive. He wants to privatize Social Security. He wants to put that money into the stock market so uh, brokers can, can rake off profits. And, of course, it's a, it's a losing proposition because of the, uh, the way that the stock market behaves. People are going to lose a lot of their money. And so the, the whole purpose of Social Security is to put you beyond the vagaries and uncertainties of the stock market into the area of a, of a defined benefit pension where the risk is not on you, the risk is on somebody else. Uh, Ryan wants to destroy all of that. In other words, these are Roosevelt haters. These are the eternal reactionary Republicans, uh, as they've always been. Uh, same thing goes for Congressman Jeb Hensarling of Texas, a, uh, a feral predator when you look at him. Right? He looks like some, some species of weasel or other animal. Of course, his idea is to, is to feast on the flesh of the American people by stripping them of their economic rights and flaying them alive. So the scenario is, and, and it's, it's been pointed to by um, the website of the Neiman Foundation. I'm not very knowledgeable about the Neiman Foundation, but their headline says it all. Has Obama created a social security death panel? And um, the answer seems to be he may well have, or that may well be the intent. They're going to come forward in November, December, in very, very bad economic conditions, uh, and propose the uh, capping of benefits, the increase of, of taxes. Some, some tax increases, of course, are fine. You could remove the, uh, the upper cap on the Social Security payroll tax. If you do that one thing, everything is solved. You don't need a commission for that. Uh, but they're going to say other things. They're going to increase the retirement age even more. They're going to lower the benefits. They're going to put on means tests. They're going to have a whole panoply of, um, of programs. And part of it will undoubtedly be privatization, at least in part. Now, this idea is so monstrous that some people can't believe that a Democratic president would do it. But I have to then point out 
the historical background, in particular of Erskine Bowles, who was Obama's number one man on this commission. Erskine Bowles, as I said, had been the chief of staff for Clinton, in particular in the year 1997, the first year of Clinton's second term, uh, before the troubles began. And there's a very interesting book. Um, this is written up on um, the Fire Dog Lake, if you want to see it there. Jane Hampshire does a decent job. How Monica Lewinsky Saved Social Security, Gingrich, Bowles, and the Pact. And this is the review of a book by Stephen M. Gillen, G-I-L-L-O-N, called The Pact, where you see Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton on the cover. And the idea is this. In 1997, Clinton uh, was eager to betray his own base, to, to really stab a pitchfork into the back of the American people, by essentially privatizing Social Security, uh, according to what the Republicans wanted. In other words, the essence of the Democratic Leadership Council, the new Democrats of, of the Clinton variety, uh, was coming to the fore. Very much. We remember in his first term, indeed as part of his election campaign, Clinton had already staged a frontal attack on the Social Security Act of 1935 by abolishing aid to mothers with dependent children. In other words, welfare. Uh, the worst thing that he did, and there were even resignations in his own administration. And, yeah, uh, and that was referred to as welfare reform. Welfare, well, of course. Reform means you're going to be stripped of your rights. Uh, that's the, 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 the general tactic. Reform means take away people's rights and call that progressive reform. I mean, it's extremely sinister. Well, now, Webster, how did Monica Lewinsky save Social Security? Well, it, it's actually ironic, and it, it's in, in some ways, uh, uh, well, one of the ironies of history that Clinton was all set to do the following. He, Clinton was, was eager to betray the residual pro-New Deal forces in the Democratic Party, at least people who had the political sense to realize that if you started privatizing Social Security and gouging it and chiseling it, which these all go together, uh, and, and imposing sacrifices on the American people. Social Security is very modest. You cut this any further, it has genocidal overtones. It means people will, will die as a result of that. He was eager to do it, uh, and this would have meant um, abandoning his democratic forces in the Congress and essentially making common cause with Gingrich to create what they would have called a centrist group of right-wing Democrats and Republicans willing to go along and passing the gutting of, of Social Security. Now, thank goodness, in, uh, in January of 1998, the Monica Lewinsky scandal explodes. And at this point, as people remember, the new Democrats, the, uh, the Democratic Leadership Council types, ran for cover. They headed for the hills. They dropped Clinton like a hot potato and thought about their own careers. But then you had a whole array of these uh, remaining New Deal types or center-left progressives who stood and fought, and they, they fought and then ultimately defeated uh, the attempt to remove Clinton from office. And as soon as this happened, or very soon after, it became obvious to Clinton that if he tried to go ahead with this treacherous destruction of Social Security, he would have lost the only people who were supporting him. In other words, he could not afford to alienate the, the uh, pro-New Deal or uh, progressive caucus in the, in the Democratic the House and, and, and Senate also. So he had, to, he had to drop it because it would have, would have destroyed his only remaining political base and probably ensured that he would have then been removed from office during, um, during uh, 1998, 1999, as it happened. So in that, in that sense... 
the presence of Monica Lewinsky, her scandal, her activities, protected us from the, the unbelievable treachery of Bill Clinton. And I, for, I think for a lot of people, that is the obituary of the Democratic Party. When you see what Obama is trying to do right now, and then read it in connection with what Clinton did do, again, welfare reform, uh, and what he tried to do and failed, thank goodness, with Social Security, uh, I think that that basically ought to close the book on the Democratic Party, at least uh, from a certain point of view. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama plans lame duck sellout of Social Security. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, before we leave uh, the Austerity Commission, and of course they're going to come forward with their recommendations during this uh, November-December lame duck session, as you pointed out, who is Peter Peterson, and what is the Peterson Institute? Yes, that's very good. Uh, Peter Peterson is the former head of Lehman Brothers. Uh, Lehman Brothers, of course, blew up. It started the the really intense phase of the New York banking panic back in uh, September of 2008. If you've got a world depression now, you can thank Lehman Brothers to a very large degree and their collateralized debt obligations. Well, uh, Peter Peterson was the head of Lehman Brothers. He was forced out uh, several decades back, but he uh, is the great ideologue of destroying entitlements. In other words, he is the anti-Roosevelt, the anti-New Deal uh, personified, except that he doesn't do it with the primitive methods of a reactionary Republican. He does it through think tanks and institutes and uh, sponsoring careers. Right? There's a whole faction of the Democratic Party that really go back to him. Rivlin, I think, would be, would be easy to see as a, a kind of a satellite in the orbit of, of Peter Peterson. He also does cultural operations. If you've ever read any of those books about the generations by Strauss and that other guy, the, the, the history of the generations in the United States, what, you know, what does it mean to be in the silent generation or baby boomer or generation X or generation Y, the millennials? You can see that he, he sponsored those books, and he, he, uh, the, the guys who wrote the books were allowed to do what they wanted. But when it got to what should the baby boomers do uh, as a final contribution, he basically says he made them write, cut their own throats by, by destroying Social Security, Medicare, and the entitlements, because these are unsustainable. Well, why are they unsustainable? If they were sustainable in the midst of the Great Depression of the 1930s, why should they be unsustainable now? They're, they're plenty sustainable as long as you undertake uh, certain uh, policy measures. But he's tried to create a culture of this stuff. Most recently, he has created the Peterson Institute, which is here on Massachusetts Avenue, which spews out this stuff about entitlement reform and how it's unsustainable. But it's not like the Heritage Foundation or the American Enterprise Institute. It's really done inside the Democratic Party. He's got tentacles inside Brookings and all this. So the, the, the commission, as you quite properly point out, uh, the staff work, in other words, the real work, apart from the from the figureheads and uh, symbolic figures that that put their name on the report, the staff work for this uh, austerity commission, right, that that's coming out in the, in the lame duck phase, is being done by the staff of the Peterson Institute, meaning by Wall Street investment uh, bankers, uh, zombie bankers, hedge fund hyenas, acting in this more neutral, a uh, little bit more. Uh, conciliatory uh, fashion 
through this this uh, think tank here in Washington D.C. So well, now is this Peterson Institute also funding this commission? Well, in effect, they are. Yes, <laughs> they're they're providing their staff. So I'm sure they're providing all sorts of unpaid services. So, uh, but of course, that's the uh, that's the corporate state. Uh, I would have to say that's the Mussolini fascist corporate state. In other words, you you create a. Uh, a government-sponsored uh, compulsory cartel, and you decide who's in it and who's not, and you, there's a kind of a symbiosis, and they become Siamese twins. But the values involved are those of the most predatory part of uh, of the financier elite, and that's that would be Peterson. Again, just he's clever about it. He's not as crude as uh, some of these Republicans that that are that are members of the commission. So, a very very bad deal. Uh, presently, the group of 20, the G20, is now meeting in Toronto, Canada. Today's Associated Press report states that Obama called for more government economic stimulus, but was thwarted by Canadian and European leaders who want deficit reductions made the priority. So that, and then, of course, in the news a couple of days ago, Great Britain has raised taxes and cut government spending by 25%. So are the Europeans and the Canadians uh, even more deficit hawks than Obama? Well, uh, this is a... uh a series of deceptions. In other words, you're in a, a you know a, a, a situation where you've got one deception inside a lie, inside a falsehood. Uh, so you get you get into a pretty rarefied atmosphere. But the basic reality is this: the U.S. and the British had hoped to cause a panic crash of the euro during the month of May. Uh, and this was done, again, with this huge attack on Greece and the southern tier of the euro, leading to that big uh, blow-up uh, d- during you know, the, the $1 trillion bailout fund that the Europeans then made, uh, made available. The goal of this, however, was to get people to pull out of the euro. What they really wanted was to have a series of central banks, starting with China, but also Japan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Malaysia, all Indonesia, Countries that were keeping some of their reserves in euros and in euro-denominated bonds, especially German bonds, the idea was to stampede them all out of that and to get them um, to, to just flee the euro, with the goal being to bring the euro down, as they said, to parity. That, is, that would have been a, a loss of 20 or 30 percent from where they started. But even further, get, get the euro down to, uh, to 50 cents. Get it down to a quarter uh, of U.S. money. Um, and they could have done this, uh, except there were, there were two things. One is what we know. The German government fought back. And on the 19th of May, the German government said, credit default swaps cannot be used by people who don't own the underlying euro-denominated bond. In other words, no naked credit default swaps on euro-denominated bonds, be they German or anybody else. And this was a stunning blow because it's the first time a major economy has turned away from the orthodoxy of globalization. It's the first time that a major government, and this is the biggest economy in Europe, it's one of the two or three biggest in the world in terms of exports in particular, uh, they said we're not going to allow these derivatives to be used. It's the first derivative regulation that we've had anywhere. And they also banned other kinds of short sales of stocks, of bonds, of the euro. So no naked shorts, which is a, it's certainly a good thing to have in place. This tended to, to slow the attack on the euro. But now we have this very interesting 
uh, phenomenon. The um, Dow Jones wires, the Wall Street Journal, uh, are putting out the idea that at the trading desks in London, where this attack was being planned, and um, that's not what they say, but that's what I'm telling you. They, they quote the Royal Bank of Scotland. That was a very big bank that's now, it went bankrupt in 08, and it was then uh, nationalized by the, by the British. The Royal Bank of Scotland is complaining, how come the euro is not going down? We're attacking the euro all the time. The euro is now more and more under pressure. How come the euro is not falling? How come the euro is even going up? Uh, and here's what they say, that the Chinese are buying euros, that the Chinese are supporting the euro. Now, this is a huge affront. This, this, is, a, this is an omen of uh, some pretty serious conflict coming up, because you'll remember a little while ago the Financial Times, as part of their policy of destroying the euro, the Financial Times put out this thing saying, China's about to dump the euro. And the next day it was, Iran is about to dump the euro. Everybody dumps the euro. Financial Times. Of course, China said no. The Chinese uh, authority that runs the foreign exchange said no, we're not going to, going to dump the, the euro. And now it turns out, according to this report in Dow Jones, that they're actually buying euros uh, for their own purposes, of course, because the, one of the things going on with this G20 is that Obama's been attacking the Chinese currency peg. The Chinese want to have a fixed parity between the renminbi, the yuan that they have, and the U.S. dollar, because this facilitates their exports. Perfectly legitimate. Indeed, the, the thing that should happen is that more countries should join that peg. In other words, bring in the euro, bring in the ruble, bring in the yen, and you'd have the nucleus of a fixed parity world financial system, which would be better for everybody. It would take us back, to some extent, towards Bretton Woods, uh, which from 1944 to 1971 was the best currency system the world has ever known. Higher rates of development from 44 to 71 than ever before or since in world history. But no, the U.S. doesn't want to do that. that that's a danger for speculation. Right? Derivatives bankers love chaos. They love uh, turbulence because that's how they make money. Right? They'll, they'll tell you that. They need uh, derivatives precisely because of currency risk. So what's going on behind the scenes is that the U.S. and the British tried to destroy the euro. Their blitzkrieg did not work. Uh, what will now happen? The forces of depression in this economy are enormous. They represent $1.5 quadrillion in the world derivatives bubble and other bubbles on top of that. If these forces of depression uh, are allowed to stay in existence, one, one, one way to, to solve this would be to get rid of them. In other words, to delete, shred, write off, destroy large portions of these derivatives, as the Germans have started to do. That would get you out of it. You'd also need uh, debt moratoria for countries like Greece, Spain, Portugal. In other words, they should freeze their financial debts for five years, say, or the, or the duration of the, of the Depression. If you don't do that, these forces of depression, they're going to claim victims. In 08, it was the U.S. Uh, banking system. Towards uh, the end of 09, it became Dubai. Then it shifted, or was shifted, better yet, was shifted by the speculators into Europe. But if the euro manages to maintain itself, you could see a crisis of the pound, very likely. Pound sterling, extremely weak, nothing holding it up. Exports practically non-existent, industrial sector destroyed. Could be the yen, uh, very high levels of debt very sort of pessimistic economic outlook, declining population, aging population, or it could go directly towards the dollar. If it's the British who go, uh, the pound goes down and the British banks go down, that brings down 
the U.S. almost immediately because of the factor of that euro-dollar market in London, which we discussed the uh, the previous time. Or it could be somebody else. It could be basically all the emerging markets, right? Brazil, Indonesia, South Africa, Hungary. It's also in trouble and so forth. So the depression is going to go somewhere uh, if it doesn't go to the euro. The, the Anglo-Americans have tried to to direct the depression, to export the depression into Euroland, and that hasn't worked for the moment. So we're now in a phase of what's going to happen next. And in other words, who's the next country that will take their turn as the epicenter of this terrible world depression? Well, now, when you said that Germany was fighting back uh, with regard to supporting the euro in terms of some of the um, laws that they've passed against uh, speculation. At the same time, though, Angela Merkel, she's quite a deficit hawk, isn't she? Yeah, and it's a terrible mistake. I mean, it's, it's, it's the wrong way to do it. And I guess that, that would be the, the, the final question for us, is what's the right way to do it? Um, in a depression, there are basically four things you can do, uh, and there really aren't more. You can have uh, you can allow the whole thing to crash, uh, which is the, the libertarian, right? The uh, Austrian school, Rand Paul, Rand Paul. Uh, in the United States, it was Andrew Mellon, right? The guy who went around saying, liquidate stocks, liquidate bonds, liquidate the farmer, liquidate labor. Everything will crash, and then we'll have a, uh, a recovery. This, this, of course, destroys a whole generation, and it can easily destroy your political system, as the Germans found in the, in the 1930s. Then there's the hot money method, and the hot money is what we've seen from the Federal Reserve. It's the $24 trillion of hot money as a credit line uh, for the banking system, which leads to what? You, you uh, give the banks money, you bail them out, you pump them full of liquidity, and they, they try to start speculating again. And in the case of the United States, the money all flees overseas, and that then became the, one of the things that was bringing down the dollar last year. So the hot money method doesn't work. This was also tried by Herbert Hoover. This was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation under Hoover, which attempted to bail out banks. It didn't work. So that's a failure. Then there's the Keynesian uh, approach, which I guess you'd call the consumer-led recovery. And this is what was embodied in the Pelosi uh, legislation, the stimulus, the $850 billion or so of the stimulus, and the 420 or so of the supplemental that were passed by the, uh, the Congress in early 2009. And that basically says... Um, you know, try to keep people paid, right? Pay your state workers, maintain your unemployment benefits. Those are very important things to do, but they represent life support. In other words, your goal has to be not to keep the victim on life support forever or on a respirator for the rest of his or her life, but to provide a cure. And this does not provide a cure because it doesn't uh, recreate the capital goods industry, for example, heavy, heavy duty investments don't come out of this. And unfortunately, once the money runs out, as we're now finding, then you're back where you were, except you've got a whole lot more debt. So deflationary crash doesn't work. Hot money doesn't work. Keynesian consumer led doesn't work. What's left? And I'm here to remind people there is another way. And it is get control of your central bank. Get control of the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank, whatever it is. Force them to make available cheap, if possible, 0% credit for credit creation, job creation in infrastructure. Uh, this is the great lesson of the, of the previous depression. The Germans learned it in one way uh, in the early 30s. Unfortunately, they learned it in a negative way. They didn't do it. In the United States, we eventually learned it through the New Deal, Lend-Lease, 
uh, and other other provisions, and through the way that Roosevelt, in effect, nationalized the the Federal Reserve and made it do what he wanted, but in in a kind of informal way that unfortunately then then died with him. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama plans lame duck sellout of Social Security. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, the basic idea is this. The, the Federal Reserve this week said that the recovery is very weak. Of course, there is no recovery. But what they're saying is there's now going to be what they call a double-dip recession. I call it the second wave of the World Economic Depression will now be hitting the United States. The difference is you've now got all this debt that you didn't have uh, a couple of years ago because of this stimulus. So you can't continue to spend on budget. So what else is there? There's the Federal Reserve. They give 0% credit to banks only. You've got to force them to, you've got to nationalize them in whole, if you can, or in part, which is maybe more realistic. Force them to open a Main Street window and say, 0% financing, cheap federal credit, 0% federal credit, to build 1,000 hospitals, to build um, 50,000 miles of fast rail and maglev rail. Do uh, a Mississippi Valley Authority. I would say you've got to rebuild the entire water systems, drinking water, sewage, water management of North America, United States, has got to be rebuilt. Uh, The entire interstate highway system is approaching the point of breakdown. Uh, It's got to be rebuilt. Your electricity grids are on the verge of collapse every summer. You've got to deal with that. You do this, you've added permanently to the capital stock of your nation. You get permanent benefits. And this is not consumer spending that's spent once and it's gone. It's a gift that keeps on giving for decades, uh, many generations in in many cases. It also adds permanently to the productivity of your labor. Because if you don't do this, you will not compete with China and other competitors on the world stage. Well, now, we went over a lot of this last time, but uh, the question has come up from uh, several listeners. How do you get control of the central bank? Politically. In other words, the the Federal Reserve is the creature of Congress. Uh, It was created by the Federal Reserve Bank Act of uh, 1913, 1914, under uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Congress controls it. Congress made it. Congress can unmake it. Right now, the tasks of the Federal Reserve are to maintain currency stability and to uh, approximate full employment under the Humphrey Hawkins uh, law. Add to that the creation of infrastructure, and uh, the basic idea is nationalize them. Nationalizing doesn't mean some theoretical thing about property, although it also means that. But the size of the money supply, the interest rates, and the kind of lending that you want to do have to be the result of a public law. It has to go through Congress, House, Senate, signed by the president, not a committee of unelected, unaccountable, anonymous bankers who claim that this is a technical process, but in reality, it's the most political one that there is. Because if anybody has prevented full employment in the United States, it was Greenspan all those years. As soon as you got anywhere near full employment, even in the kind of economy, service economy that you had, uh, Greenspan would immediately take away the punch bowl, start to, de- to, uh, to deny credit, because he didn't want uh, wages to go up, because that was not in the interest of his uh, coterie of rich oligarchs that he served. But then that begs the question, how do you get control of Congress? With a third party, obviously. In other words, it's not the Republicans and it's not the Democrats. It's going to have to be something else. And don't despair, right? If you look at the, the populist party 
uh, isolated farmers, really, much, much more a difficult situation for them than, than what a lot of us face today. Out in Nebraska and uh, Oklahoma and places like this in the 1880s and 1890s, they nevertheless put together a populist party. Look at their uh, convention of 1890, and you'll see a lot of the uh, landmark legislation of the progressive era and what interests me more of the New Deal. The New Deal parity price agricultural policy system essentially goes back to economists connected to the populist parties. So you could say, well, they never really took power. Well, you, maybe they could have, but they didn't. But uh, the point is that the ideas can then become dominant in one or the other of the existing parties. Because the, the, the current Democratic Party in particular really has no reason to exist. And there was, it's based on a complete falsehood. And uh, as Obama now um, goes towards collapse, I think, um, or at least towards a severe defeat uh, in the November elections, likely to lose one house uh, of the Congress, I would think at this point, there's going to be a, a crisis of, uh, of leadership there. But I, I think, again that the basic thing we need is a candidate to challenge Obama in the primaries, probably Democratic Party primaries and or third-party candidates. But the idea is you've got to be anti-war, anti-Wall Street, anti-Federal Reserve, and uh, you've got to be anti-dictatorship. In other words, you've got to be in favor of maintaining civil liberties, because these are eroding uh, under Obama as fast or faster than they ever did under Bush-Cheney. It's just that it's, uh, it's not uh, as much an object of public attention. Now, what about so-called Stimulus 3, including the extension of unemployment benefits? Now, that's been defeated. What's the Well, it's defeated for the moment. I think this, this points to the, to the dilemma we're in. Um, look at the Wall Street Journal editorial of today. Right Here we are, June 26, uh, 2010. The Keynesian dead end. So they say, uh, we've tried all this public spending. We had, a, we had a stimulus under Bush. We had about $170 billion at the beginning of 2008. And then we had the $862 billion stimulus. And I would add the supplemental that they, they seem to have forgotten about. That got you up to more than a trillion. And now there was an attempt to, to come up with $200 billion more. But what was the problem with the stimulus? Uh, compare the, the Pelosi stimulus to Franklin D. Roosevelt. With Franklin D. Roosevelt, you got things that made a difference. Uh, you got, on the one hand, Harry Hopkins creating four and a half million jobs uh, within a couple of months in that terrible winter of 1933 to 1934. That changed people's lives. You got relief uh, on stopping foreclosures. Um, and then you got things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which revolutionized the lives of tens of millions of people. You got the Rural Electrification Administration that brought electric current to so many rural places in the countryside that didn't, didn't have it, and, and so on. Uh, the problem is not enough uh, infrastructure. We didn't get a fast rail. We didn't get uh, the rebuilding of the interstate highway system. These are all very obvious things. If you talk to anybody coming to this country, once they see what passes here for uh, an interstate highway system, they'll say this is, this is simply unbelievable. It's primitive. Compare the, uh, the Autobahn or the Autostrada in Central Europe, and you, you get an idea. You don't know what a road is anymore uh, in this country, and so on, right, all through all these areas, right? Or every area, freight rail, passenger rail, commuter rail, electrical grids, 
water systems, canal systems, absolutely critical for the cheap uh, transportation of bulk merchandise, uh, your school systems, your hospital systems, all of these in crisis. Uh, so this is an area where the money should have been invested. And you, you do get the idea that a lot of this was frittered away on essentially boondoggles that appealed to Pelosi and her and her clients, but didn't create visible changes. In other words, you build a transcontinental maglev rail from Boston and New York to San Francisco and and, uh, and uh, Los Angeles by way of Chicago and a few other places, that will change people's lives. They can see visible progress. And there was a capital good that you can see. Uh, you begin to build fast rail and urban mass transit in the, uh, in the main metropolitan areas. You begin taking cars off the road. You're going to reduce pollution, stress. People live longer, burn less fuel, all these wonderful advantages, things that would change people's lives. For the money that Pelosi spent, I would say about half of that stimulus was wasted uh, in, in the final analysis. Because you, you can't do this forever. You've got to put the resources where they need to be, because soon, if, if you fail, then you know, Corker and Chambliss and, and those guys are going to take over, and, and they, uh, they're going to skin you alive in their own rather more direct way. So I, I think that's, that's the failure. Uh, the lack of an understanding of the importance of infrastructure, credit creation, and again, you, you don't want to spend uh, money out of the budget. We're not talking about federal spending. We're not talking about federal borrowing. We're starting from the idea that the United States government, especially if it's properly run, is still by far the most powerful institution in the known universe. It doesn't need a bank. Why should the United States government need the zombie bankers at J.P. Morgan or Citibank that have now gone bankrupt and been saved by the U.S. government? The U.S. government needs to act as its own bank. So ultimately nationalize the Fed, bring it back into the Treasury, and issue loans, federal credit, federal lending, uh, but just make sure that it goes into infrastructure and similar uh, productive activities. So this, I think, is the, the lesson. Where, where are you going to get resources? Well, remember, money is a political fiction. Your resources are empty factories and unemployed workers. And what you need is money just as a means of putting those together. The resources are located in the real world, not in the metaphysical reality of money. So you have a policy bullet. The best policy bullet, the golden one, the silver bullet, has yet to be fired, and that is to force the Federal Reserve to regard itself as the servant of the entire economy, not just of the banking sector, because they have gone off into the wild blue yonder with derivatives and credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. And... Uh, force them to put the credit-creating power at the service of the economy, right? Some people say, make credit a public utility. Good. Make it a public utility. You've got to nationalize in whole or in part the Federal Reserve. And then you've also got to do things to stop speculation, notable among them the Tobin tax, right, to slap a 1% tax on financial turnover. Because one of the things that's making your deficits worse is that the financial sector as a whole is not taxed. It's simply not. Uh, and the turnover is not taxed, and they escape the corporate income tax. But uh, any, anything you buy, you pay sales tax, but uh, they, they trade all day long, right, flash trading, uh, high-frequency trading a million times a second. They don't pay a penny on that. That's got to change. Any comment on Eleanor Kagan being nominated for a seat on the Supreme Court? 
Well, this takes us a little bit far afield, but of course, the first thing we know about her is that she's from Goldman Sachs. Uh, she was a, an advisor to, uh, to Goldman Sachs. And the, the feeling I get about her is that she represents what I would call totalitarian liberalism. In other words, a, um, a, a view of the role of government, which is, um, it is oppressive. Um, I would say that uh, this is, is someone who uh, sides with um, oppressive legislation. In other words, she's, uh, she's a true believer in the war on terror, and she wants the erosion of civil liberties uh, to go with that. Uh, so I, I think this is a very, very bad, bad choice. Sounds like a scary combination. Webster, is there anything uh, else? Uh, is there anything you'd like to add? I just uh, I hope people will uh, will take an activist approach to the crisis that we're going into. The failure to pass the stimulus three is indeed a watershed. It shows that uh, the tremendous potential of uh, 2007 2008 has been aborted, as I feared it would. But the life will go on. The crisis will get worse, and uh, rather than uh, drop out because uh, Obama turned out to be what he obviously was, a Wall Street uh, operative, it's time to uh, to become active and uh, and think of ways that uh, political process can still be used to avoid uh, the worst and to promote an economic recovery, since we do know how to do this. There's no mystery about how to get out of a depression. You change your policies, you get out. If you don't change your policies, you don't get out. Uh, there will be a phase now where the reactionaries get the uh, the upper hand, right? We're dealing with Wall Street Democrats and reactionary Republicans. The Wall Street Democrats are now in decline. The reactionary Republicans are in the ascendancy. But um, we need a third way because that's no choice for America between those two groups. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Obama Plans Lame Duck Sellout of Social Security. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, 
divided we will fall Cause love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? 